Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we adore you. You are creator God. You are the ruler of the universe. You have made all things. And you are good and you are wise and you've displayed your love for us in your son Jesus. And we confess that we don't love you like we should love you. We pray that you would help us to love you more. We pray that we would understand your love so that we might respond to it. We give you thanks for this church body. We give you thanks for the redemption that we have in your son Jesus. We give you thanks that all things in creation are moving towards your intended purpose. The redemption of your people, the glorification of your name. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to bless our church, that we might love you more and know you more and serve you more faithfully. We pray, Lord, for our community here, the city of Maricopa, the tens of thousands of people that live in this city that don't yet know you. And we pray that you would use our church to proclaim the excellency of Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we proclaim his greatness, that many people would hear and believe. We ask that you would give us the courage to share his excellence with those who are far from you. And Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would minister to us today as we study your word, that you would convict us of sin and lead us in righteousness, that our lives might honor you for all that you have given to us, everything that you have done for us, for everything that you are. So Lord, we ask that you would bless this time in Christ's name. Amen. Open with me in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you are a guest with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, we have our welcome table back there with some Bibles on it, and you can have one of those Bibles. Um, you can actually take it and keep it, take it home with you. We want you to have it. Or you can always look it up on your phone. But we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'm just going to read verses 1 through 3. The Apostle Peter writes, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is a new chapter in First Peter, but you need to understand that actually the chapter divisions in your Bible um, are mostly artificial divisions. I mean, apart from the Psalms, most of the Bible doesn't really break down into chapters. At least when Peter wrote this letter, he did not write it and, you know, notate, and this is chapter two, guys. He just wrote a letter. The church put the chapter divisions into the Bible about a thousand, more than a thousand years after the Bible was originally put together, and it did that so that when we gather together, we can say very simply, just open up to 1 Peter chapter 2, instead of saying, go to that place in your Bible where it says, put away all malice and anger and etc. Okay? So this just makes it easier for us to study God's Word together. The reason I mention this is because uh, although this is a, a different chapter in our Bibles, Peter is not really making a hard transition here. We should understand 
that as we begin verse 1, that we're really kind of continuing a teaching theme. Peter begins this part of his letter with a connecting word. Do you see it there? The ESV, that's the translation that I use, the English Standard Version, uses the word so. So put away all malice. Some other versions use the word therefore. The point here is that these verses are connected intensely to the verses that came before. They're connected because at the end of chapter 1, in verses 18 through 25, Peter was proclaiming the gospel to his readers, explaining to them what the gospel is, and now in the verses that we're looking at today, he's going to help them understand what some of the effect of the gospel is. So because Christ's power is at work in us, raising us up as imperishable seed, causing us to be born again, putting to work in our lives the living and abiding Word of God, because all of that is true, so then let us step into this new life. Let us live in accordance with these things. If the gospel of Jesus Christ has saved us, then it's saved us for a purpose. And so let's put to work that brotherly love that Peter mentions. To say it another way, the good news of the gospel is intensely practical for our daily lives. The gospel is not merely a set of beliefs that we ascribe to so that on the day that we die, we get into heaven. The gospel leads to a transformational way of life right now in our daily life. The good news of Christ's victory in cooperation with the living and abiding Word of God and the Spirit that gives us birth into this new life, it has the result, it has the effect of really seriously changing us. So Peter then tells us, because we are transformed by this gospel, put away all malice, put away deceit, put away hypocrisy and envy and slander, because we've received this good news and it has renewed us into the image of Christ. And therefore, it's now possible for us to live without these sins present in our lives. Now, I've been trying to paint for us a picture of the possibility that lies before us because of the gospel, the possibility of a life without hypocrisy, without deceit, without malice or envy or slander. But let's not miss the fact that Peter is actually giving us a command here. It is a command. He's telling us, put away all of these things, just like you heard in Colossians chapter 3. We have to understand that although Christ has made all of these things possible for us by virtue of his life and death and resurrection, God has done all of the really hard work for us, causing us to be born again. We do still have a role to play in the process of becoming like Christ. So I want to throw a couple theological words at you this morning. I like to do this every now and then. The two words that I want to give you are monergistic and synergistic. Monergistic and synergistic. I'd be willing to bet that most people in this room have not heard those words before. Theologically, our salvation is monergistic. Mono is the Latin word for one. 
And so there's one person who works to secure our salvation. That's God alone. You do not do anything to receive your salvation other than just accept it from God. You didn't work for it. You didn't earn it. You didn't participate in it except for receiving it as a gift. God alone saves, so salvation is monergistic. But after we've been saved, we're called then to follow Jesus Christ, and the work of following Christ is synergistic. Synergistic also comes from Latin, uh, and it means in company with. Synergistic is when two things work together. And so the process of becoming like Christ is a partnership between God and us. Salvation is monergistic. God alone does that. But becoming like Christ over time in life as we practice the things of Christ, that's synergistic. We do it in cooperation, in partnership with God. We work alongside of the Spirit of God. And through the power of the Spirit working in us, we humbly depend upon Christ and he bears fruit. We abide in Christ, and therefore he bears much fruit in our lives. We can't do it apart from God. Have you tried that? It never goes very well, I can tell you. But also, God's not going to do this work of making us like Christ apart from our willing participation. You know, sometimes we come before God and we pray, God, change me. God, change this thing about me. And we should do that. But sometimes we pray and ask God to change us when we should simply put away the behavior that we continue to choose to do. We pray and ask God to do something that he's already provided everything we need for. And we, if we're honest, are just simply not choosing to use the provision that he's made for us. Um, there's a great quote by St. Augustine in his book, uh, The Confessions, where he says, God, make me chaste, just not today. He wants to be pure. He just wants to have a little bit more sin first. The power of God was available to Augustine to make him chaste, but Augustine didn't want to actually take hold of that power and put it to practice in order to do what he knew he needed to do. God has already made every provision for us through Christ Jesus by the Spirit, and so now we must seize that provision, put away sin, and be like Christ. Maybe we could il illustrate the synergism of our spiritual growth kind of like driving a car, okay? Okay. Uh, the provision for the movement of the car is already there. It's got the wheels, and it's got an engine, and it's got fuel in the tank. But the car's not going anywhere till you hold the wheel and you press the gas pedal to steer it and move it forward. The car was meant to drive. It was made for the purpose of moving. And in a similar way, by the Spirit, we have been remade for the purpose of moving towards Christ. And everything that we need for that work has been provided for us. And so Peter, drawing on the good news of the gospel, can say to us as believers, put away the sin, 
Put away the old lifestyle. Now, in verse five, we're given, or sorry, verse one, we're giving, we're given five specific sins that we are told to put away. This is not an exhaustive list; it's just a summary list. We saw saw a few different uh, words in Colossians chapter three, but Peter tells us to uh, cease these things. Now, I want to look at each of those things in detail with you, but before we do that, I want you to check out this short little video. All right, hopefully you can appreciate the humor of that video. Uh, and don't worry, if you, if you ever need to join me for some pastoral counseling, I promise that I won't sit across the room from you in my office and just yell at you to stop it, okay? It won't look like that. But part of the reason that the video is humorous is because we, we understand that some of the behaviors that we find ourselves engaging in, they're really deeply ingrained in our lives, aren't they? It never just feels as simple as stop it. We can sympathize with the woman in that sketch uh, because the compulsive behaviors that we repeat habitually, they feel difficult to escape from. They don't seem so easy to get rid of. But I do want you to understand that in some ways, in verse 1 here of 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter is essentially telling us, stop it. All of your malice, all of your deceit, all of your hypocrisy and your envy and your slander, stop it. God has truly made it possible for us to do this, and so therefore, stop it. And we're probably tempted to reply, well, Grady, come on, it's not, it's not that simple. You don't know my situation. You, I've got a really good reason for why I continue to do this behavior. behavior. And I understand, it, it might not be easy. It might take some hard work. It might take some real effort and some practice. You might even have to begin by humbly acknowledging before God that the reason why you continue to do any particular sin is because you actually really like it, you really enjoy it, and that's why you do it. But we need to understand that fundamentally, sin is a conscious, willing choice that we make. And sin is not more powerful than the grace of God. Do you understand that? I understand that it feels entrapping and it feels powerful, but it is not more powerful than God's grace. Jesus has set us free. This is what Peter is telling us. Christ has set us free from these things, and therefore, we really can choose to stop doing sin. By his grace, that option is available to us. You know, at one point, Jesus himself even says something very similar to this in John chapter 8. Do you remember that story? He's engaging with the woman who was caught in adultery. And what does he say? Go and sin no more. That's very similar to stop it. That command would seem harsh, I think. Except that through the power of Jesus Christ, this is a, an actual possibility for those who believe. Jesus is not condemning this woman or shaming her when he says this to her. He's not giving her an impossible task. Now that she has encountered Christ, a whole new life of possibility is open to her. 
So God has made the provision for our success in stopping it through the gospel, through the resurrected life of Christ, through the, through the power of the Spirit, through the wisdom of His Word, through the fellowship of the saints, through repentance that transforms us, through the grace of God's acceptance, through the access that we have to the Father through prayer. And so all that's left for you and me is to make a serious, conscientious effort to actually obey the things that Scripture commands. And notice that in verse 1, three times Peter uses the word all because he's showing us that God's intention is for all of these things to be utterly eradicated from our lives. That's where redemption is ultimately taking us. And so when it comes to malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, as your pastor, I tell you, stop it. Seriously. But if the command is not enough for you, then let's work through these words because I want to show you that part of what the gospel does is it, it, it conquers these things. The power of these sins has been destroyed for those of us who believe. You think that they are powerful, but what I want to tell you is that the gospel is more powerful. We can reflect on Jesus. We can see that in the light of the glory of Christ, actually, these sins are impotent to control us. Not only has every provision been made for us, but Christ has destroyed the power of sin for us who believe so that we can actually be the masters of our own choices. We can make our choices honoring to God by the grace that has been afforded to us. So as I work my way through these words, if you're using a different translation than the ESV, the words might be a little bit different, but they're the same concepts, okay? So begin with put away all malice. Malice is a mean-spirited or vicious attitude. Malice defines our culture right now, doesn't it? It's a nasty cancer that's infecting our society all over the place. And think about this. God has every right to feel malice towards you. Do you know that? I mean, God made us, and then we rebelled against him. And then when he came to bring salvation, we took him and we crucified him in response to his loving approach. And in our sin... Therefore, we have actually been guilty of malice towards God. We murdered him. But God's response to our wickedness and our evil is to offer to us peace, hope, kindness, forgiveness, mercy. So how can we who have received so much from this God stand before God then with malice in our hearts towards other people, an attitude that is mean-spirited, when we have received from God grace. Don't you see the command to put away all malice? It flows to us from the very heart and character of God himself. God has conquered man's malice with the love of the cross. And so how can we as Christians not then put away our malice towards other people? If you persist in your malice then I think it's fair for us to ask the question, have you actually encountered this love of God that is so transformational? Have you understood the way in which God has embraced you even though you have treated him with malice? 
Because one of the effects of God's love is to banish malice and hatred from the human heart. What about deceit? The second sin that Peter talks about here and says basically, stop it. Uh, We need to begin with deceit by understanding that it's actually a much broader category than lying. I would be willing to bet that most of us in this room deceive much more than we lie. And you can technically, or you can deceive without technically lying. Let me give an example. Imagine a man who normally gets off work at 5 o'clock. He works a little late till 5.30 that night. And then on his way home, he decides to stop by the bar to grab a beer with his buddies and watch some basketball. And he gets home at about 8 o'clock. And his wife says, did you work late tonight? And he says, yes. And says nothing else. Technically, he has not lied. But certainly, he has deceived. And Peter tells us that for those who follow Jesus, the standard is not merely don't lie. The standard is don't even deceive. Be truthful in everything that you say and you do. So why do we lie and deceive people? What motivates the sin of deceit? I think probably fundamentally the reason we deceive people is because we feel a need to present ourselves better than we actually are. We're kind of, if we're honest, we're kind of ugly on the inside. We're kind of embarrassed about what really takes place in our heart and our mind. We have secret things that we're ashamed of. We have twisted desires and we have selfish motives. And so we deceive people to appear better than we actually are. And Peter says, stop it. And the gospel helps us understand why God knows the secret intentions and desires of your heart. It's already displayed before him. He's aware of all of it. Those things that you're ashamed of, the twisted desires, your selfish motives, God knows it. And you know what? He still loves you. You don't need to try and deceive him. And therefore, we don't need to try and deceive other people because we just acknowledge the simple truth that we are despicable people. Like, the good news of the gospel begins with saying, I'm worse than you could ever slander me as being. That's the truth. And yet, I've received God's love anyway. What do I have to hide? And we want to be like him, free from deception, free from dishonesty, And so you can stop being a person who deceives because you are already known by God and loved by Him. His love can set you free from pretending to be something that you're not. The next awful behavior Peter tells us to stop it is hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy is holding somebody to a standard that you don't hold yourself. It's giving a public impression that is actually contrary to your inner life. And it's similar to deceiving in that way. The Pharisees were hypocrites because outwardly they projected themselves as being these very holy people who cared about God, but in their hearts they were rotten. I would say that to one degree or another all people are hypocrites, unfortunately, but I want to make a distinction here. It is not hypocrisy to strive towards holiness and then fail and come up short. If you repent and you reorient yourself back towards that holiness. 
If you strive for the standard of holiness and you fail and you come up short and then you turn from the sin that you did and you strive again for that holiness, then you're not a hypocrite. You're just a broken sinner like all of us are. The world tends to call Christians hypocrites because we fail to live up to the standard of holiness that we preach, but it's only hypocrisy if you don't strive for the standard that you preach. Do you see? The Christian can put away hypocrisy then because through the gospel, what is true about you? What is true about you is that you are pious, you are holy, you have been made into the image of Christ already. His righteousness belongs to you. We claim that the standard of righteousness is Christ and Christ alone. It's not Grady. It's not Christianity. It's Jesus. That is the standard to which we strive. And that is the standard by which we would judge all people. Do you want to be righteous? Then be like Christ. We don't hold anybody as Christians to our own personal standard of goodness we hold everyone to God's standard. And we're not pretending to be something that we're not. We're striving to practice what we actually are. We are made righteous. We look to Christ and we seek to live out his life in our lives, putting into practice the true righteousness that is ours by virtue of his work. See, the opposite of hypocrisy is just actual real piety. It's real holiness. And that's what you've been given as a gift by Jesus. And so that's how we should live. We must also put away envy. To be envious is to be discontent with what you have. And from that discontentment to be desirous of what somebody else has. Someone tell me, who has more than we have as Christians? Who in this world has more than you have as a follower of Christ? The gospel tells us that we have received all the riches of Jesus himself, all the wealth and all the blessing that comes from acceptance by God is ours. All the power of the Spirit of God is ours. All the fame and honor of being called a child of God is ours. All the pleasure of the kingdom of God forever after is ours. We lack nothing. As Christians, in our poverty, we are rich. In our humility, we are exalted. In our weakness, we are strong. In our, sor in our sorrow, we can rejoice. In our confession of sin, we find not rejection but love and acceptance. In our self-denial, where we deny the pleasures of the flesh, we find all the pleasures of God available to us. As, as Christians, what could somebody possibly have that would be greater than those things? What could we possibly envy when God has showered us with all the riches of Jesus. The only thing for us to desire as Christians is more of Christ, which God promises to give to us if we seek it. The only thing that we could desire would be to be found in him more fully day by day. Envy is meaningless to the Christian because in Jesus, God has already shared with us the greatest of all things, his own beloved son. 
And then finally, Peter tells us to put away all slander. Slander is a false statement that damages the reputation of someone else. It's obviously ugly and divisive when people slander others. Man, when that begins to happen in a church, it's so destructive. And in a way, slander is the inverse of hypocrisy. A hypocrite tries to make themselves look better by pretending they're something which they are actually not. They try to appear better than other people. The slanderer tries to make themselves look better by destroying and diminishing others, tearing them down, so that everybody around them looks worse so they can look better. But the gospel allows us to simply acknowledge our lowliness before God. You know, you are already at the bottom of the dog pile. You don't need to slander other people to try and make them lower. We as Christians understand we cannot elevate ourselves. Only God can lift us up and exalt us. And we recognize that we are already as pathetically low as we could ever go on the totem pole of awesomeness. We are miserable, wretched sinners standing before a holy, holy, holy God. And yet, that God has called us his children. He's made us his own. He's actually crowned us with the righteousness of Christ. Because God accepts us through Jesus, then we bear the glorious, perfect, exalted reputation of Jesus. And therefore, we don't need to tear others down in order to elevate ourselves. God has spoken well of us because God has spoken well of his Son. And we can receive that blessing and then we can speak well of others. And yet, tragically, too often these sins, they still exist within the church too often, don't they? Haven't you heard people over the years express that they don't like this church or that church because people there are hypocrites or they said mean things or whatever? Sadly, this is present in the church. And so let me remind you of what Peter says. Stop it! Put it away. Because of what Christ has done, stop it. Now then in verse 2, we are presented with an illustration like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Infants are innocent. They know nothing of malice or deceit or hypocrisy or envy or slander. If you've raised an infant, you know they are a ton of work, and that's certainly true. They're needy and sometimes challenging, but their behavior is innocent. It's not malicious. Like, your infant, when it messes the diaper, is not doing it to, like, spite you. And it's also the nature of newborns to grow up into maturity as they receive the nourishment they need. And so likewise, we as Christians have been born as infants into a new spiritual life. And just like we must physically grow up into physical maturity, we are being told that we must spiritually grow up into spiritual maturity. Don't be a baby Christian your whole life. Like, if you're in your 50s and you've been walking with Jesus for 30 years, you should be different than you were in your 20s. Grow up. 
Let us strive for spiritual maturity where we stop the sinful behaviors of our old life and we practice the virtuous life of the salvation that we've been given. And Peter is not saying here when he talks about salvation that this produces salvation. Rather, he's saying that because we are saved, we are newborn infants in God's kingdom. Therefore, we can grow up into the kind of life that reflects the salvation that we have been given. Growing up into salvation means that we're growing in our maturity, learning to live the salvation quality of life that we've been spiritually born into. And the spiritual milk that Peter says that we are to long for, with a longing that leads to action, that leads to real growth, this spiritual milk is the nourishment that comes to us from the Spirit and from the Word and from the fellowship of the body of Christ. You know, many people who call themselves Christians don't live a spiritually mature life, and the reason is because they don't engage in drinking deeply from this pure spiritual milk. They continue to practice sinful behaviors and they neglect the study of God's Word, the application. They neglect walking by the Spirit. They neglect participating in the body of Christ. And so they remain stunted and immature. And then finally, and this is really probably the most important part outside of stop it, verse 3, we get to the real heart of the matter, okay? If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is, is good. Stop it. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Here's the real motivation for putting away sin. It is good and right for us as Christians to say to one another that sin that you're engaging in, stop it. But the actual motivation for our effort to put away sin, it has to be tasting that the Lord is good. What can really drive sin out of our lives? tasting that the Lord is good. What drives sin out of our lives is the greater glory and excellence of Jesus Christ. Once you taste that the Lord is good, the taste of sin is disgusting and unsatisfying in comparison, isn't it? Do you know what I'm describing? I love how the pastor John Piper talks about this. Many years ago, he coined a phrase, Christian hedonism. Have you heard this phrase before? I love it. A hedonist is someone who lives their life for pleasure. Like if you say that person is just a raging hedonist, usually what you think of is carousing and sexual promiscuity and drinking and blowing lots of money on pleasure. The prodigal son who left his father's house to go seek pleasure in a foreign land, he was a hedonist. And typically we would say that a person who devotes themselves to the pursuit of pleasure as a hedonist is a fool. But the Christian life, following Jesus, is actually the relentless pursuit of the greatest pleasure there is. The Bible teaches us that in the presence of God there is pleasure forevermore. And it's not the kiddie, silly, foolish pleasure of just 
gratifying the desires of your sinful flesh. It is a pleasure that until you stand in the presence of God, you will not even be able to comprehend. It is so great in its nature. And so a Christian hedonist is a person who has tasted that the Lord is good, a person who has come to desire with all of their heart the greatest pleasure there is, the pleasure of God himself, the pleasure that will come when you stand before the Lord and you hear him say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my pleasure. And the pleasure of God is the most powerful force there is to draw us away to sin. John Piper has a great illustration. Imagine a jar. Okay, you got a jar, and I tell you, I want you to remove all of the air from that jar. How would you go about doing that? What would be the most effective way to get the air out of the jar? You might think, well, plug in my vacuum and put a hose in there and try and suck it out, right? But wouldn't it be much easier to just dunk that jar into the water and fill it up? That would remove all of the air. It would be so much easier than trying to suck the air out. That would only create a negative space, and nature hates a vacuum. Something would try and get in there. But by filling the space with something else that pushes the air out, well, that's an effective way to get the jar empty of air. And this is the Christian approach to putting away sin. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? We don't work to expel sin from our lives. Rather, we work to be filled with the pleasure of God. And when you are filled with the pleasure of God, the pleasure of sin is so dull by comparison. When we work to taste more fully how good God is, then the temptation of sin becomes small. John Piper writes, Christian hedonism, Christian hedonism asserts that the most effective way to kill our sin nature is by the power of a superior pleasure. No one sins out of duty. You have never sinned because you had some kind of duty to sin. No, we sin because we feel that sin is more pleasant or less painful than the way of righteousness. And so bondage to sin is broken by a stronger attraction, a more compelling joy. You know, when I was a little kid, I ate pretty much what most little toddlers eat, chicken nuggets and mac and cheese and hot dogs, right? If you've had little kids, you know that like that's basically the three major food groups right there. Now that I'm a grown man, I almost never eat those things. I mean, I do occasionally, but I almost never do. Not because I don't actually like those things, but because I've come to taste some really incredible things. A nice juicy T-bone steak, a lobster tail, some lime and cilantro grilled shrimp, a nice well-seasoned piece of salmon, a good Caesar salad. How about some sourdough bread dipped in some broccoli cheddar soup? A juicy bacon cheeseburger. I could do this all day. Brie cheese baked with some pastry and honey. You see where I'm going with this? Many of us are trying to stop sinning 
by sucking the sin out of the jar, by sucking the air out. And we would experience far more success if we would just fill the jar with the beauty of Jesus. So many of us are trying to starve ourselves off of mac and cheese and hot dogs and chicken nuggets when we should be filling ourselves with the rich food that is offered to us in Christ. Peter speaks about a better way of addressing sin, a better way than just stop it. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Be full. Be satisfied in Him. Feast on the Word of God. Be full of the joy of the Spirit. Consume the pure spiritual milk. Fold yourself up into the life of the church. Set your mind on the things of God, not on things that are on earth. Rejoice in the midst of your circumstances. Give thanks in all things. Love Jesus. Fill your soul with His riches. And you'll find that the more you do that, the more that sin begins to just taste like ash in your mouth. It comes when you eat it with heartburn and tummy aches and retching and discomfort. It, it, it carries with it just a repulsive sickness that you don't want to experience anymore. It's empty and gross and it is never truly pleasurable because you've tasted real pleasure in Christ. John Piper, once again, says it so eloquently. He says, the root power of sin is severed by the power of a superior pleasure. The bondage to sin is broken by a stronger attraction, a more compelling joy, the expulsive power of a new affection in our hearts. So when it comes to sin, stop it, because Christ has made that possible, yes, and also because Christ has called you to a greater pleasure than the lying, false pleasure that sin promises. Let's pray. God, would you give us a taste of your goodness? Would you let us know the riches of your glory? Would you let us have a view of the joy that you offer those who follow you? Would you teach us to understand the joy of obedience? Would you teach us to experience that our sin tastes foul? Lord, I ask that you would rid our hearts of sin, but not by making them empty, but by making them full. Fill us. In Christ's name. Amen.